Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Hamish. I'm Alice. And we're a queer history podcast. Every fortnight, one of us will talk about a topic from queer history around the world and throughout time. Today we're going to talk about Anne Lister, who was a 19th century landowner and diarist. So in terms of content warnings for this episode, we actually just don't have a lot to warn for for once, which is refreshing. Um, there is a brief mention of Anne being beaten at school. Um, we make a joke about murder and we talk about STDs for a bit, but that's really all we could come up with. So Anne Lister was born on the 3rd of April, 1791, and she lived until 1840. And throughout much of her life, certainly for all of her adult life, she kept incredibly detailed journals. And this is incredibly exciting because they are arguably the most significant source that we have about the lives of same-sex attracted women in her time. They're this really delightful mix of just like careful, methodical chronicling of daily life in a small town in West Yorkshire in the early 1800s. And depictions of passionate love affairs with other women. The latter portions were written in code, which is just so cool in and of itself. That is Um, very cool. Yeah, it's a code that she devised herself. It's basically just a cipher of like mathematical symbols and Greek letters and things like that to the English alphabet. I have a copy of it, but it's clearly one that someone's worked out themselves and there's a few inaccuracies. So hopefully by the time this is on the internet, I'll have got like a proper one. Yes, and hopefully Um, we can publish it somewhere. Yeah, we'll put up a copy of it if we at all can, because it's just really cool to have a secret lesbian code from the 1800s. They were deciphered originally by John Lister, who was a relative of hers and friends of his in the early 1900s, so like about 100 years or so after she lived. Did they know that they were decoding, like, lesbian diaries? Well, they did once they decoded it, and as soon as they realized what they had, they were horrified. Yeah, that was what I was wondering. Um, And they immediately suppressed it, but, like, not super well, (laughs) because (laughs) they put, like, a copy of what the code was with her diaries in an archive. So so they only suppressed it by not, like, actively publishing it. I read somewhere, like, in an academic article, not just, like, on, you know, the internet somewhere, that part of the reason why John Lister was so keen to suppress it was that he was gay and very closeted and oh, okay. he didn't want to draw attention to himself but I don't know anything about this man I don't know how true that was uh, so okay. it might not be true at all mm-hmm. the historian Helena Whitbread found them in the 1980s I believe and has spent the intervening time between then and now transcribing them into normal English and editing them and so forth and she's published two volumes thank you Helena of her diaries yeah. yes thank you Helena Good on her. <laughs> you're great she's working on a biography and this was like 95% of my sources for this episode <laughs> Yep, so Anne was born towards the end of the 18th century. Her parents had four sons and two daughters. Three of her brothers died in childhood and one died in 1813 in a boating accident, which left Anne and her sister as the only surviving children and therefore meant that Anne, as the elder of the two, was able to inherit Shibden Hall in Halifax, which was their ancestral property. She was sent to boarding schools from the age of seven where she was regularly beaten just because she was a like a child. Just because that was what they did to kids in boarding schools at the time? Yeah, just because she was an unruly child. And she used to spend a lot of time talking to girls instead of paying attention to her schoolwork. I was going to be like, yes, so he's clearly a lesbian. I was like, if you're in an all-girls school, that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she spoke to her classmates. But she specifically notes, like, I just flirted with everyone and did no maths. That sounds like a pretty positive school experience. That's how I feel about maths. She has her first relationship with another woman at boarding school with her roommate. Um, That's convenient. mm -hmm. 
Eliza Rain. We don't know a lot about her. We do know that she was the daughter of a West Indian planter and also that she was a woman of colour, which I thought was interesting. That's interesting. We also know that Anne used to flirt with other girls to make Eliza jealous and that heavily distressed Eliza. This is kind of a pattern in Anne's life where she'll have kind of like multiple women on the go and kind of... Play them against each other. Yeah, read each other's letters to the other one yeah not cool Anne. yeah um we'll talk more about it later on so do we know that she did this to eliza because she's written it down yes okay are the diaries from that time so her diaries the published ones start from 1817 which is after she's in boarding school by a few years okay the editor just kind of notes that that's when they start quote-unquote, accessibly. I don't really know what that means. Like, maybe she became much more detailed at that point, or, you know, like, maybe they were just kind of, like, notes and they're Mm -hmm. just not a good read, no matter how you edit them. I don't know. Was she writing in code at this point? I think she develops the code when she's in boarding school with Eliza. So at some point after Anne and Eliza had finished boarding school, Eliza ended up being pronounced incurably insane, and she spent the rest of her life in medical care. Do Um, we know? Don't know anything about it. I've okay. told you literally all the information I have about Eliza Rain. Okay. Anne visits her whenever she's in York for a long time after that, and it was noted somewhere that this may or may not have been welcome because she, like, breaks up with Eliza. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking because that is a thing where people get committed to wherever because they are queer, and I was wondering if that was the situation. Yeah, it could have been. I really don't know. Okay. I have no idea. Although if Anne is visiting Eliza later, then it suggests that Either they don't know that she was the one involved in the queer relationship, or they're okay with her girlfriend visiting if she has been committed for being queer. I don't know. Hmm. Which would seem very odd. That is true. Just from how things tend to go later with her and her girlfriends, they would have known it was her. She's not subtle. Okay. <laughs> like I kind of like this woman. <laughs> people mark throughout her life that, like, you're just a bit too close to that friend of yours. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I, I have no idea. I just felt weird, like, leaving that out. So while I was at boarding school, she gained the lifelong ambition to better herself socially and to rise up through social ranks. She came from, like, a well-off family, but they were from, like, this small town and they weren't really that rich and everything. And she was mixing mainly with quite wealthy families and it's this ongoing theme throughout her life that she wants to be mixing in better circles than she is and so forth. What made this difficult at this time in her life was she moved to Halifax in 1815 at the age of 24 to start learning how to manage Shipton Hall. She was never happy with the social scene in Halifax, but she was glad to escape living in her parents' home because she hadn't been happy there. She lived at Shipton Hall with her aunt and uncle, neither whom ever married. Is Shipton Hall her parents' home? I'm slightly confused. Yeah, it's their, like, ancestral property, but they don't live there. Oh, okay. So she was living with her parents in a place that was not Shipton Hall. She was living with them in York, I believe. They've got two properties. Shipton Hall is, like, her father, who's the lister, obviously. Like, his family line's property for, like, 200 years or so by this point. Mm -hmm. And her mother brought a smaller, I think it was, like, a townhouse kind of thing to the marriage, and her sister ends up with that. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So who's living there is her aunt and uncle who are kind of middle-aged to elderly and they're both unmarried throughout their lives. Originally, upon moving there, she's financially dependent on her uncle and also somewhat on her father. But as the years go by, she becomes more and more in charge of the estate and she becomes more independent financially and generally. And even in the early years, she's pretty much allowed to just kind of do whatever she wants with the money that she does have and also with all of her, almost all of her time, which isn't a luxury that a lot of women got at this point (laughs) in history. So to fill her spare time, she worked on a self-imposed curriculum of Greek, Latin, French, maths, geometry, history, and literature. 
That sounds fun. It's yeah. a good spread. Mm. Yeah. Partly she does this just because she has an inherent value for education. But also she just desperately needs stuff to keep her busy in this very isolated environment that she's now in. She often writes about how she would be like emotionally lost without both her studies and her journal. And she writes, Oh, books, books, I owe you much. Ye are my spirit's oil, without which its own friction against itself would wear it out. Which I love. <laughs> that is That's lovely. Good. Yeah. She politically was a staunch conservative, loyal to family, king, church, and country. And she had little to no sympathy for the poor, or for the general ideas of social equality that were current at the time in the wake of the French Revolution. I like Anne less now than I did 20 <laughs> seconds ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found in researching her, like, I do like her generally overall. She's quite an interesting person, but I definitely had moments where I was like, Anne, you're great. And then, like, 20 pages later in the diaries, I'd be like, Anne... What, what are you doing? This is definitely something that I think that we're going to come up against, where it's oh, yeah. like, these people were super queer, they had a lovely relationship, one of them was a war criminal. Less so here, like, her politics don't come up a ton. She's yeah. a bit politically conservative, and she sometimes a bit dodgy to her girlfriends, but she's definitely not a war criminal. So in terms of her relationships, it was just incredibly important to Anne that she had a partner. She reiterates again and again that she can't be happy unless she has, like, a steady preferably live-in girlfriend. She writes of it once, so many times she writes about this. There is one thing that I wish for. There is one thing without which my happiness in this world seems impossible. I was not born to live alone. I must have the object with me, and in loving and being loved, I could be happy. The choice of saying the object seems weird, and like, I'm not sure if that's just the style of language and it means like the object of my affection. It does. Yeah. So for most of her life, certainly for like most of her published journals at this point, She's got one main girlfriend, and then she's got a few others who are vying for that girlfriend's place at certain times, and then she's got just a myriad of small flirtations and affairs. My first draft of this tried to be comprehensive, and then I realized we didn't have five hours to talk about Anne Lister. <laughs> so I can't all but the main ones, but like, rest assured. This is just like a representative yeah. sample. So many, so many, like, just so many. That's very refreshing. To be clear, I'm not being like, oh, God, Anne, what are you doing? I'm just being like, trying to list this was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> she, throughout her life, struggles to find a woman who she thinks like suits her in every way and who she wants to be her life partner, but she definitely doesn't struggle to just find women generally. <laughs> so the main love of her life was Marianne Belcombe. I've seen her name written as Marion, Marianne, Mariana. I'm going with Marianne. Is it consistent in Anne's diaries no. or no? I don't know. In the first volume that Helena Whitbread published, it's quite often just M. Um, or yeah. sometimes it's Marianne. Yeah. In the second volume, it's Mariana. Okay. Uh. Marianne's family were quite well-to-do, but they were relatively poor at this point. And she was one of five sisters as well, which doesn't help that. I'm confused about quite well-to-do, but relatively poor. So she comes from a, like, high-born lineage, but they don't have a lot of money at the okay, moment. Okay, yeah, I see. Cool. Yeah. A lot of this was kind of like etiquette in England, I guess. I imagine they're much wealthier than the general population, but oh, among yeah. their peers, not particularly wealthy, is what you're saying there. It is the sort of thing, though, where Marianne, like a lot of Marianne's actions, if she does not find a husband, she is not financially secure at all. Okay. There's five of them. Like, her father can't support five, like, unmarried girls. Mm -hmm. So it is yeah. a case of she, yeah, certainly better off than, like, the working class of this time, but it's still something that they're, like, worried about. Mm -hmm. Something I was reading recently, doing research for another episode, a very similar thing came up, and an unmarried woman ended up the family put her into a poor house because they couldn't support her. Oof, wow. Even though they're, you know, not an incredibly poor family, mm. 
if there's no one to support her, if she doesn't have a husband, that's what happens. Mm. Yeah. Grapes. Mm. And that's why, like, it's worth noting that he had five daughters, not, like, five children. Mm. He's also got mm-hmm. a son. We're not worried about him. He's fine. A son can He's, like, himself. allowed to have an income at this time. Yeah. Like, they can't go get jobs. They can't get yeah. an education. Society fundamentally messed up, yeah. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is very true. It is worth noting that, you know, how I mentioned that Anne has, like, lots of her, like, little affairs with random women. Mm-hmm. Of Marianne's four sisters... Four of her affairs were with them. She had an affair with every single one. That's really not on. Although a little impressive. Yeah. As weird as that is, a full set is very impressive. Mm, it is. <laughs> a full set. Yes. Or, like, a straight or a flush. Not straight. No. So a flush, then. <laughs> In 1815, Charles Lawton, who is a quite wealthy man, he's a widow, he's 20 years older than Marianne, proposes to her. Anne and Marianne had talked about Marianne marrying before. Originally the idea had actually been Anne's. And they talk it over this time and at the end of that conversation, Anne is under the impression that the decision is that Marianne is not going to go through with the marriage. Yeah. Um, she's staying with the Belcombe family at this time, so she leaves and goes and visits another friend. And when she comes back, Marianne and Charles are writing to each other. He's going to visit her soon, and they're going to get married in a few months. So That's a bombshell. Yeah. <laughs> Before the wedding, Marianne and Charles get wedding rings made, like, as you do. And Anne took Charles's. Oh. oh, wow. Yeah, she stole it, and she replaced <laughs> it with another one. So these original, like, two rings that were made as a set, Marianne and Anne are wearing them. And Charles is wearing this, like, unrelated ring. That's amazing. It is, isn't it? Did she get a copy made, or...? Yeah, I guess. Okay. I'm assuming it's just, like, a plain, like, gold band. Yeah. So she did this with Marianne's knowledge? Yeah. And consent? Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was quite into that. Yes. So they're basically married now. They really conceptualize it as such, yeah. They yeah. always talk about it in terms of, like, like Mary Ann says, like, you must consider me to be your wife. Like, stop being adulterous and things like that. And <laughs> they go to church together and do the sacraments as, like, a symbolic kind of marriage. Like, hmm. because they obviously can't have any, like, actual religious ceremony hmm. yeah. to join them. They use that as a symbolic way of kind of, like, joining together and of sanctifying their relationship. Okay. Mm. Marianne Belcombe marries Charles Lawton basically just in order to be materially and financially secure because Anne can't offer her that. Mm-hmm. And also in order to satisfy societal expectations, Marianne is like intensely conservative and mm-hmm. very concerned about public appearances and things. Anne is heartbroken by this to the point of physical illness. She never moves on from it. She never like really comes to terms with it. But she also can't give Marianne up. Like she's in love with this woman, kind of, like, past the point of being rational about things. Mm -hmm. So their plan at this point becomes that because Charles is so much older than Marianne, that Marianne and Charles will be married until he dies. And then at that point, she's going to come and live with Anne at Shipton Hall. How old is Charles? Mid-40s, maybe. Okay. That doesn't seem like an age to count on them dying. It's quite a long term. Yeah, he may have been unwell. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. It would look quite socially acceptable for this, like, grieving widow to come and live with her quite close friend at mm. that point. That's not suspicious. Okay. Inherently. In context, if people know that they're queer, like, if people know that Anne's queer, that would come out as suspicious? Their conduct towards each other might make it suspicious, just like, yeah. if you just heard, like, oh, yeah, there's um the woman who lives up at, like, the manor house, her friend was recently widowed and is living with her now, you wouldn't be like, what's up with that? Okay. You so that was pretty think normal. it was normal. Charles finds a letter hinting at this plan that they're waiting for his death. 
that must be super awkward to read. Hmm, yeah. And he's very suspicious and jealous, and he bans Anne from visiting Morton Hall. From his perspective, that does seem quite reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> so they have this, like, rather unhappy time where they're only really writing to each other, like, once every few weeks, and... Mm-hmm. It's sad. This really seems like the setup for a manor house murder mystery. If Charles dies, it's really obvious who did it, though. Mm. That's not a mystery. I did have a moment where I was like, why didn't they just kill him? And then I was like, because murder is not okay. <laughs> I'm glad that was your follow-up thought. Anne is sometimes very convinced that Marianne loves her and that she's committed to her and believes that they will be together and they will live at Shipton Hall together one day. In one of those times, she writes, I can live upon hope, forget that we grow older and love you as warmly as ever. Other times she doubts this, and she talks about Marianne very harshly. She refers to her marriage quite often as legal prostitution. Ooh. (laughs) And uh, she refers to Marianne once as being the ruin of my health and happiness. She wonders if she should be looking for another, like, long-term partner, wondering, quote, could I refuse and still lose a substance to expect a shadow? It seemed to me as well that, like, early on in Marianne and Charles being married, she seemed to have felt that their relationship, like, hers and Marianne's relationship, was the primary one, and Charles and Marianne's marriage was the thing intruding on that. Mm -hmm. And now, like, as the marriage continues, and as Marianne kind of becomes, like, more entrenched, in the community where she is now living and everything, it seems like she sort of starts to feel like the positions have been reversed and she's the secondary partner and the one who's intruding and the one who's doing something wrong and she starts to wrestle with feelings that, like, I'm committing adultery, I'm with another man's wife. Mm -hmm. And it's quite hard on her psychologically. I just want to note here explicitly that the relationship she has with Marianne and with numerous of her other female companions was definitely sexual. We definitely have this tendency to assume that, like, lesbian relationships even now to an extent, but especially historical ones, just weren't sexual. I've been asked how lesbians have sex. Yeah, we've all been asked that. Yeah. yeah. This is part of the reason why Anne's diaries are such a valuable source to us, because, like, explicit, passionate descriptions of sex between women just aren't something that we have from, like, first-hand accounts in history. We just don't have many of those. Yep. And it's really exciting that we do. There's a bunch of sex scenes. I'm not just going to, you know, reel them all off, but I'll give an example of one that I thought was, like, a particularly tender and sweet scene. She's describing this, like, really, like, heavy, rainy day, and the rain gives way to a thunderstorm, and she's in her bedroom with Marianne, and flashes of lightning are illuminating the room. Right? (laughs) So picturesque. (laughs) And she wrote, In the midst of all this, we drew close together, made love, and had one of the most delightfully long, tender kisses we have ever had. We slept in each other's arms. That that sounds like a euphemism. Yeah, so the word kiss is used to describe either just, like, sexual contact or, like, sexual acts in general or an orgasm specifically. Secondary sources, like, differ on which one they claim she's using it for. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes she's using it for one and sometimes for the other, frankly, just from, like, having read these diaries. That seems quite plausible. She's also sometimes talking about, like, actual kissing. (laughs) Yep. Obviously. This wasn't a euphemism that she came up with. We see it quite often in, like, older English writing. Shakespeare uses it. Several years into her marriage, Marianne contracts a venereal disease from her husband who's been having extramarital affairs, and she passes it on to Anne. Well, that's no fun. No. No. Not in this time. I mean, not not ever. No. (laughs) She spends a long time trying to get this kind of under control. She meaning Anne or... Both. 
I meant Anne, but both. Marianne's brother is a doctor, and he's treating Marianne. And so Anne goes to the brother and says, So I've got this friend who's been experiencing symptoms really similar to Marianne's. Like, she's really embarrassed. She doesn't want to go to a doctor. Can you just, like, give me the prescription you gave Anne, and I'll, like, give it to her, and she can get it filled. And And the legitimate doctor says... Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. You thought the doctor was way more legitimate than yeah, that? Yeah, no. Maybe he was sympathetic. Given that, like, her relationship with Marianne is very long-standing, I feel like the family kind of knows. There's times where her parents are a bit like, we don't really want you to stay in our house, and she has to kind of, like, make nice to them socially for a while and not, like, let her stay again. Uh-huh. Also, all of her sisters knew because she... Slept with them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if she slept with all of them, but she at least, like, did an amount of heavy petting with all of them. Um, <laughs> it's been a long time since I've heard the term heavy petting used. I feel like I'm in, like, early high school sex ed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I that. It was an effective description. Yeah. So it's possible that he was, like, sure you were here's the prescription. Like, mm-hmm. I know you got this from my sister. Yep. And especially if he's concerned for his sister's health. Then it's like, well, I'm not going to stop you then having sex. You should just take the thing. I'm concerned for my sister. Yeah, that's true. But also, like, at this time, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are going to doctors and being like, I have no idea where this STD came from. Mm-hmm. And things like that. Yeah. And as a doctor, you'd know that and just be like, my duty is to make sure this gets taken care of. That's a good yeah. point. So she gets a prescription filled and she starts treating herself. She tells her aunt and uncle that she's unwell, but she doesn't say what with. Mm-hmm. Eventually, she does admit that it's venereal. But because this is like the 18th. 20s, I think, at that point, and people had dumb ideas about where you get venereal disease from. It was fine. She was like, I used, like, a toilet in an inn. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't have. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> she uses a changing regiment of injections, washes, pills, and powders, and she never becomes fully free of it, because that's how the 19th century was. Anne also really struggles to deal with Marianne's shame about their relationship, Marianne expresses in letters to Anne, which are, like, the only sources we have in her own voice, that she's extremely frustrated and sad by having to be closeted and by not being able to just live openly with Anne and having Mm -hmm. to be in this marriage. But for all of the grief she's experiencing, she prefers that to people knowing about them. Yeah. And just constantly saying to Anne, like, be more subtle. She's also quite embarrassed at, like, times to be seen with her in public because Anne is quite masculine in appearance. Mm -hmm. And people noticed like, people would, like, look at her and, like, make comments and things like that. And so Marianne, walking with her, felt embarrassed by this. And Anne knew that she felt embarrassed. When you say masculine appearance, do you mean in dress? So she decides, and quite early in the journal, so, like, 1817 or 18, that she's going to wear all black. Okay. Which is very goth. Which is very cool. I love her. And part of that is because the I don't fully understand the intricacies of dress at this point. Mm-hmm. But, like, the upper half of the women's dresses at those times, all black kind of resembled men's ones a bit more. Mm. Oh, I see, yeah. She did attempt to make her clothes look more masculine. She always had to wear dresses and everything like that. Like, there's only so much you can get away with. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, like, she'd never wear bonnets. People would tell her, like, you should wear a bonnet. And she'd be like, no. She got, like, a great coat made specifically, like, to a men's cut and things like that. Okay. And people would comment that she had, like, just a very masculine way of walking. Hmm. Yeah, so she was quite masculine in appearance. And knew that Marianne was embarrassed, and she's very hurt by this, as you would be. Yeah, uh, Yes, reasonable. So they've got a number of tensions in their relationship, and these gradually, over time, start boiling over. In August of 1823, 
Marianne is coming to meet Anne for the night to stay with her, and then Marianne's going off on other travels. And Anne is meant to wait in Halifax for Marianne to arrive there with a carriage, and then they'll continue their journey together. She is so overwhelmed with joy at the idea that she's going to get to see Marianne mm-hmm. that she sets off across the moors on foot. She walks ten and a half miles. That's a long way. Yeah. Yep. Everything I've read about moors tells me that this is not a great idea. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. It takes her three hours, and then she just kind of comes across the carriage on the road. So she, like, runs up onto the road and stops the carriage. And Marianne and her sister are sitting in the carriage, dozing. And she, like, leaps up into the carriage, like, leaps the stairs, pulls open the door, and she starts talking, like, very quickly without greeting or anything about how she's walked all the way from Shibden to come and meet you. Mm -hmm. And to Marianne, who's just been dozing in the back of a carriage... This person just, like, leaping into her carriage all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and just talking very, like, manically at her, is just wild and bizarre and completely inappropriate. And as someone who's very concerned about her, like, public appearance, it's very upsetting. And her, like, gut reaction to Anne is just to say, what the hell do you think you're doing? That does make a lot of sense. The image that I have is of twigs and hair, which I imagine (laughs) wouldn't have happened on a moor. But if you're woken from sleep by a loud person, that's never a pleasant experience. Mm. So that immediate response of hers, nevertheless, is deeply hurtful to Anne, who in her mind has just made this, like, big romantic gesture, because she essentially, like, could not wait to Mm. see Marianne. And she thinks, certainly, Marianne can't wait to see me. And that not the case. Mm. And it's a turning point in their relationship. Anne never really recovers from it. Aww. She mentions it constantly that she can't stop thinking about the incident in a journal for like months afterwards. She writes down to the minute. She writes Thursday, 21st of August, 1823, 3.55pm. Oh. I've just had like a realisation that Marianne is never going to have the courage to come and beat with her. That's, That's very sad. sad. Yeah, it is very sad. And... It's one of a few kind of moments of severance that the two have. But nevertheless, at this point, although they don't ever really recover from this, she still stays with her. I'm Um, surprised this relationship is lasting. Yeah, they're really in love. And also Anne just needs to have someone. Mm -hmm. And, like, she's built for years and years and years that this is going to be her wife. Mm, And letting go of that, like, that's hard, man. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) So Marianne, although kind of the most significant relationship of her life is not the first relationship of her adult life. Hmm. That's with a woman named Isabella Norcliffe. Isabella is someone that she met in society in York, and she never married and she had hopes of being Anne's life partner. However, she also introduces Anne to Marianne. That seems like a mistake. Yeah. And then that relationship forever takes precedent over the relationship between Anne and Hmm. Isabella. So after she gets together with Marianne, she nevertheless sometimes does think about having... Isabella be her life partner, her wife. But she essentially thinks about it when she's particularly lonely, when she's not seen Marianne for a particularly long time. Like, she's essentially using Isabella as a backup. And she doesn't make this clear to Isabella. Mm. So she is still with Isabella at this time. They're kind of very on again, off again. Like, kind of when they're in the same place. But she never, like, not for a long time anyway, doesn't extinguish her hopes of one day them living together and being together. That's kind of rough. Yeah. It's one of the things she does that's like, it's clearly very not fair on Isabella, and she does a lot of things that aren't fair on her partners, but it's the kind of thing where she's basically doing everything she can to make her own, like, emotional health as good as it can be. She's doing it at the detriment of people around her, 
but she's in such a difficult position that I'm not entirely unsympathetic towards her. You can see why she's doing it. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. There are several different reasons why she never fully commits to Isabella. Partly it's logistics. Isabella discusses the idea of them spending half of the year living together at Shipton Hall and then half of the year living at Isabella's property. Mm. But She has her own means? Like, somewhat, yeah. She's not, like, massively wealthy, but, you know, she's in that kind of relative upper crust. But she has to have her sister live with her. Mm. Like, if she moves out, she has to take her sister with her. Okay. I don't know, like, if this is just, like, how that particular family dynamic's working or if all of the stuff I'm about to say also leads on from just, like, particular Georgian social etiquette. Mm. But basically the problem with that is that if... Isabella moves out to be with Anne and her sister comes. Mm. And then also they're living at Isabella and her sister's home Mm -hmm. with Anne. Mm -hmm. Anne and Isabella can never, like, fully be the mistress of the other's property. Right. So they can't be, like, just equal part who are, like, managing Shibden and then managing Isabella's home. Right, because the sister has to be in there as well. Because the sister, yeah. I don't fully understand why, like, the intricacies of how that works, but that's Mm. how it is. Okay. And so... It's very important to Anne, like it's essential to her, that they have this kind of marriage-like relationship where they are the two people who are in charge of the estate. Right. And she's very unwilling to compromise on that. Okay. And she also just kind of finds that Isabella's personality is very grating on her. Um, <laughs> Isabella has alcoholism, basically. She drinks heavier and heavier as time goes by, mm-hmm. and it causes Anne to become very disillusioned with her, and they have fights about it. It seems okay not to be up for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She does continue a sexual relationship with her, regardless of how she's feeling at the time about the possibility of them being together in the long term. And she continues to do so after she contracts the venereal disease from Marianne, without telling her about it, Hmm. and just kind of hoping that she doesn't pass the infection on. Okay. She gets a letter from Isabella saying that she's been feeling just, like, really lethargic and down and unwell, and she kind of goes like, oh, hope she's not got that venereal disease, but... Yeah. For what it's worth, I don't think, like, from what I can tell from her diaries, I don't think she does pass it on. I'm not saying that's, like, fixing it, but, you know, like, it's nice to know that for Isabella's sake. Yes. I don't know for sure, but it seems that way. Anne does eventually make clear that she's not going to consider a long-term relationship with Isabella. And they have some terrible rows over it, and they just kind of lose contact eventually. Okay. So one of the things I found difficult and one of the things I think would be worth doing a thesis on is trying to figure out exactly what the various people around her know or are assuming about her relationships with these women. Hmm. Obviously she's not being completely open about things. She can't be. But it's very clear that like her family, the families of the women she's involved with, and also just people in the town are aware that she's forming these like very strong attachments to other women that go beyond the norms of like a platonic friendship it's also sometimes clear that this is like quite poorly thought of so the residents in halifax make quite cruel comments about her friendships with women and about her appearance it seems like it kind of occupies this middle ground where they know that there's something going on Mm. and they know that they don't think it's appropriate but they don't understand like the full circumstance But I also don't know if that's just me being naive about what your everyday person at this point actually knew about Hmm. women having sex with other women. Having read a little bit about this period, I think people knew more than we usually give them credit for about women having sex with women. Like, there were things published at this time talking about the fact that women in boarding schools slept together and stuff like that. And it is the Edwardian period, which is... The Georgian period. (laughs) I... um, (laughs) 
It is the Georgian period. A big part of the Victorian backlash against sexuality was because there was this perceived moral degeneracy in uh, sexual conduct before Victoria came to the throne. Oh yeah, I think people knew more than we usually give them credit for about the fact that women could and did have sexual relationships with other women. Mm. I think it very much depends on like what person we're talking about as well. That is true, yeah. Because she'd have like random men kind of make comments at her just when they're mm-hmm. passing on roads. Gee, glad we've come so far and that that no longer happens today. Yes. yes. Like, you presume that they hear different things than, like, a sheltered, upper-class young woman. Yeah, no, that is true. Her aunt and uncle were definitely aware of the situation to some extent. Like, they definitely differentiate between just, like, Anne's normal friendships and Anne's lovers. Hmm. And she was very clear to them that she was never going to marry. And she was also very clear to them that she wanted to find a female companion to come and live with her as her de facto partner. Okay, that's very upfront. As far as we can tell, like, the possibility of there being sex involved in that was never mentioned, but that's not abnormal. Like, you don't talk about sex with your elderly aunt and uncle, even if you're in a straight relationship at that time. Even now, I do not talk about sex with my elderly aunt and uncle. No. No. Do we get the impression that her aunt and uncle were fine with these decisions to not marry and to look for a female partner, or was this something she had to fight for? They were quite supportive when she was talking about, you know, I'm sad because I've had a row with my girlfriend or whatever. Like, even if it's just kind of providing her with a shoulder to cry on and not Mm -hmm. really, like, having a conversation about it, there was definitely that support there. There's times where it seems like her aunt's distressed, but it's because... Anne is distressed. Right. I suppose that they're both unmarried and they know that not taking a conventional path is something that someone can do and still be an acceptable person, I suppose. Yeah. Helena Whitbread speculates that because neither of them married, um, they could be sympathetic to the idea that, like, you know, you're never going to marry and you're still going to have sexual and or romantic needs and Mm -hmm. you don't have societally sanctioned way to find an outlet for that. It doesn't seem like she was ever chastised by them over her behaviour. And, in fact, I think her aunt, it was, wanted her to find a partner before they died because then she would have security. Like, not Mm. financial security. Like, she'd have a family unit. Okay, yeah. I still, I just don't know what they think is happening here, Mm. but they know that something is and they're... Okay with it. At least, like, tacitly in support of it. Okay. They're also just very fond of her. You know, she lives with them for a lot of her life and... Mm. They're, you know, reliant on her handling the estate, and they're relatively close, and yes. Okay. That seems like a sweet little unit. Yeah, that's good. So as her financial means grow, she begins to travel. She does this increasingly as her life goes on. She travels to Wales, and she sees the grounds of the ladies of not Langolen, but another way of pronouncing a Welsh name that's got double L's. I tried to figure this out today on the internet, yeah. and I came across five or six different pronunciations. There was just a lot of the English and the Welsh abusing each other, and then I just left the internet and decided to apologise to any Welsh people listening to this. But for now, Langolan. Okay. So Anne goes and visits the town and is just immensely excited to be near them, basically. And they're, like, a bit up from her socially, is what I gather. Um... And she writes, and she asks for permission to see their grounds, and she goes, and she does, and she so, writes. So they're still alive at this point. They're quite old, but they're alive. Okay, cool. yeah. Eleanor Butler, who's the old ones, in her eighties, I think, and Sarah possibly still in her seventies. Okay, yeah. She writes about her little visit to their grounds. I'm interested about these two ladies very much. 
There is a something in their story and in all I've heard about them here that added to other circumstances makes a deep impression. I could have mused for hours, dreamt dreams of happiness, conjured up many a vision of hope. She sends a message to them asking about their health because they are quite old. Mm-hmm. Um, and Miss Possumby sends a message back saying, oh, thank you for your concern. I'll see you tonight after dinner. Basically summoning her. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah. And Anne did not expect this and she's very nervous. Oh. Yeah. Which, I don't know, something just really relatable about this. Like, yeah. You know, like just, yeah. it feels like, I don't know. Meeting a role model. Yeah. So she writes, like, several pages about this little, like, going and having tea with Miss Possumby. She describes her in great detail. She's very taken by her manners and her conversation. They talk about Eleanor Butler for a while, and they talk about books as well. Miss Possumby is afraid of classics, (laughs) (laughs) saying, thank God from Latin and Greek I am free. (laughs) I think we've all felt this in some way. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if we've ever mentioned, um, but in case it's like your first episode or something, we're all classicists. No, I we're all vaguely classicists. Yes, we've all done Latin and Greek. Yeah. What you taught me—that <laughs> counts. There's some. Yeah. Mm. They don't talk about queer things directly, which was disappointing to me, to be honest. I mean, they talk a little about classics. Sure, <laughs> but they're frightened of it. <laughs> Anne isn't frightened of it. <laughs> Uh, the closest they come to talking about queer things is when Anne, she describes it as when she dared to ask if uh, Miss Possumby and Eleanor ever quarrelled. Huh. And um, Miss Possumby replies, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a very pleasant life. Hmm. And then when Anne leaves, uh, Miss Possumby gives her a rose and she takes it with her and she dries it and she keeps it forever. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. It's very good for her to have, like, queer role models who are doing what she wants to do. Yeah. She writes to Marianne about it, and Marianne is incredibly interested in this. Marianne sends Anne a letter, wondering if they're platonic or not. You have at once excited and gratified my curiosity. Tell me if you think their regard has always been platonic, and if you ever believed pure friendship could be so exalted. If you do, I shall think they are brighter amongst mortals than I ever believed they were. And Anne, in her diary, writes in response to this, I cannot help thinking that it was surely not platonic. Heaven... (laughs) (laughs) That just sounded very modern. That was very good intonation. (laughs) Thanks. Heaven, forgive me, but I look within myself in doubt. I feel the infirmity of our nature and hesitate to pronounce such attachments uncemented by something more tender still than friendship. But much or all depends on the story of their former lives, the period passed before they lived together, that feverish dream called youth. Sorry, can we go back to what Marianne was asking her? I think essentially the question is, like, is this sexual? Basically, do you think they're like a couple like us? Because if so, that's rad. Okay. Yeah. I Like, that's my read of that. Yeah, no, that sensible. sounds correct. Yeah. And Anne's like, nah, surely not. <laughs> really? As in, nah, surely not, they're definitely Like, surely they're not platonic, surely they're, oh, like... Yes. A couple. Yeah, like us. Mm-hmm. And she's like, they are, like, 70, but, like, surely back in the day, mm. they were also having quote-unquote kisses, as she would have put it. So there was this, like... Um, and this is, again, another thing that I would really like to look into in more depth, but because of time constraints, both on, like, me researching and me talking about it now... I've left it for another episode, is there is that, like, romantic friendship model where women can live together, mm-hmm. right? And that, I think, was useful to Anne, like, reading about that kind of thing, but that's not what she is. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, she probably is just saying without sex, they're basically just that, and that's not helpful to me. 
Okay, I see. And she's saying they are now basically just that. But whether we call it what I am it depends on what sex they might have had in the past, which they're probably not doing now. Something about that interpretation feels subtly wrong to me, but I can't put my finger on what. I mean, she might just be saying I'd need to know more about their lives. There is definitely a thing where, like, obviously we here today aren't going to be like, sex is the most important thing in a relationship, friendship is meaningless or whatever, but sex is very important to Anne is basically what I'm saying. That makes sense. If there's an existing model of platonic friendship that she doesn't feel that she fits into and and the main defining criterion that she fulfills to step out of that is having sex with her friends. Yeah, but I think that even, like, outside of an identity formation thing, Anne just really likes sex. I mean, Like, it's important to her. It's good fun. Mm. Like, she focuses on it a lot. Returning to her travels, which is ostensibly what this topic was. (laughs) Okay. Uh, She also organizes a lengthy stay in Paris, and she goes and stays in a guest house there where there are several other women staying. She begins courting three of them and is doing pretty well with all of them. Good job, Anne. That sounds very Anne Lister. Yep. Uh, One of them essentially is trying to ask if she's interested in women. And she's like, I've got a question to ask you, but I have to write it down. I'm like, too embarrassed to ask it. And she writes it down on a piece of paper, and it says, are you Achilles? Oh. (laughs) Yeah, because classics, man. Yep. That's pretty great. Um, For context, Achilles is going to come up in this podcast. He's super gay. I mean, arguably super gay. He... He's arguably bisexual, I think, is if we're going to use modern terms. Sorry. Mm. He's one of those figures from mythology who has, like, their intense favourite, who they're in love with. He's someone who people hint about when they try to talk about queer things. And Anne reads this and blushes and laughs, having understood the classical reference. Another is demonstrating to her what a French kiss is, where you, like, kiss on both cheeks as a greeting in Paris. <laughs> That's not how I immediately interpreted French kiss there. That's why I clarified it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I haven't heard someone call it French kissing in <laughs> so long. Yeah, so she kisses her once on each cheek to demonstrate, and in return, Anne says, well, I'll give you a Yorkshire kiss, and kisses her <laughs> on the mouth. That's what I'm calling that from now on. And the woman, in response to this being, like, apparently the greeting in Yorkshire, says, no, it's only like yourself, but I don't dislike it. <laughs> In the end, she chooses Maria Barlow to try and pursue beyond flirting. Helena Whitbread suggests that this is partially probably because Mrs. Barlow is the most vulnerable of the women she's considered. Mm, yeah. Mrs. Barlow? She's a widow. Okay. Uh, she's on like a small like army pension, and she has a daughter. A widow does seem very convenient. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's basically the situation that they wanted to be in with Charles. You've fulfilled your obligation to get married. That's done. And now... I don't know if it... Because with Marianne, she had that a long-standing friendship beforehand. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is just she's kind of like found a widow. Like, right. I don't know if it does look as good. But okay. in any case, they start having conversations about love between women. Have you heard that women can do this? Have you heard that Marie Antoinette was apparently a little whatever euphemism? Mother? And Anne starts, like, trying to pull her onto her lap and put her hands up her skirts. And Maria Barlow just kind of lets her, like, take it further and further. And they end up lovers. so they've quickly gotten themselves into this nascent relationship as like people do when they're on holiday i feel regardless of how suitable the person is or is that just (laughs) just me no that's a solid statement yeah 
you know, like a one person you dated when you were in high school because you're like, our families are at the beach near each other. Yes. Both of them have doubts about the relationship, though. Anne is worried that Marie is just trying to get financial security from her and that she doesn't actually love her. As her life goes on, her focus in what she wants from a partner becomes more and more that she wants a woman who can bring money and social connections mm. to the marriage. So she's trying to, like, marry well, essentially. Okay. And she has nothing in terms of that. She's a widow who's at around the same social rank as Anne. And Anne doesn't intend that the relationship will end up being long-lasting. Maria, for her part, is indeed worried about how she can get financial security out of this. In particular, what's worrying her is that, like, with a man, if he's courting you, mm. and you're a woman, and it's this time, mm-hmm. or not just in this time, there's this, like, clear line of marriage past mm-hmm. which, like, if you marry him, you are now guaranteed mm-hmm. financial security. But with Anne, they can't marry. And so she's worried that if she starts having sex with Anne, then Anne is going to lose interest in her and she's just going to have become this, like, casual affair. But she's worried that if she doesn't have sex with Anne, then Anne's going to lose interest in her anyway. Hmm. How, how do we know her concerns? I'm just getting this from, like, Helena Whitbread's chapters in between. Okay. Yeah. So it's probably worth talking about how... Insofar as I can see, you could go to the archive mm-hmm. and you could get the journals. Okay. Like the original journals. They are like incredibly difficult to read. Mm-hmm. Half of it's in code. Half of it's in incredibly tiny handwriting. Mm-hmm. It took Helena Whitbread years just to mm-hmm. like transcribe this. Mm-hmm. But there's no source. Like there's no like full published diaries. Mm-hmm. So we can't look at everything. Okay, yeah. And I'm not trying to like cast any aspersions on Helena Whitbread's work as a historian here. It's just that she is essentially like our only source for these diaries, and given that she has edited them quite heavily, it's obvious that to some extent we're being presented with, like, a constructed narrative. And, like, she did have to edit them quite heavily. Like, there's, like, pages and pages about the new footpath she wants to put in <laughs> that's not interesting or useful if you're coming mm-hmm. to this from a queer history perspective. I don't know where she got that from. And in addition to being stressed about her financial security, Maria Balu feels guilty for having sex out of wedlock, and she feels guilty for having sex with a woman. Mm-hmm. And eventually just kind of gets sick of her, and she starts thinking about how she can get out of the relationship. Uh, she starts hinting to Maria Barlow that she should remarry. She did have a couple of suitors mm-hmm. around this time. And eventually just leaves Paris and goes home. And Oof. she leaves Maria Barlow as well. Well, that's rough. And, yeah, she doesn't really regret it. Okay. And she's glad to be back in England, but she really enjoyed having this extended trip, and she's going to mm. just continue to travel more and more. Maria Barlow keeps writing to her, wanting to somehow continue their relationship, and she writes that, you know, I know you're encouraging me to marry, but I'm so in love with you that I just don't have any emotion left for anyone else, and I can't do it. And Anne doesn't want to make false promises to her, but she can't really offer anything. She's not going to, like, quote-unquote, marry her. Um, and she just says, look, I'm sorry, but you should probably get married. Mm. After Anne returns from Paris, her uncle passes away. Mm. She's obviously, like, quite grieved about his death, but she also feels relieved that she's finally become completely independent, Mm. and she feels conflicted about that. Mm. Her concerns in life become to look after the estate, generate enough money to travel, and to find a life partner. Those sound like very modern concerns. Yeah, I mean, we're in modern history now. She is very good at managing the estate. After her uncle's death, workmen and like business partners and things think that they're going to be able to get away with stuff they couldn't with her uncle essentially just because she's a woman and they're quickly disabused of that notion that's good to hear 
Yeah, her uncle, um, because of his age and also because some of the like the tenants and the people they were working with had been there for such a long time, he had a fondness for them that meant that they could kind of get away with stuff mm. and doesn't have any sentimentality about running the estate at all. It's just a business for her. So she's more exacting than her uncle was. Marianne briefly leaves her husband and flees to Shibden Hall. At some point in her youth, and would have been all for this, but Anne's grown up a bit by now, and she's drifted away from Marianne a bit by now, and she's mostly just alarmed. The plan had originally been that, you know, Marianne leaves Charles after his, well, leaves Lawton Hall after mm. Charles's death, and it looks quite fine. Mm-hmm. But Marianne running away from her husband to Anne as soon as Anne becomes financially well off doesn't look so good. That, that's a little tragic. Yeah. Anne eventually sends her back to her husband, and she begins to reconcile a little bit with Charles. The plan is that they will reconcile a bit on the surface until Charles feels all right with her kind of being around, and then she can have more of an involvement in Marianne's life. So they're still kind of on board with the long-term relationship. Mm. Charles dies. They're still together. They just have this like very glacial process of drifting apart mm-hmm. that it's hard to convey. That's sad. Yeah. As part of the plan to kind of get in Charles's good books, though, she arranges a short trip to Wales and Ireland with Marianne and Charles, just to show, like, the public that they're all friends. Mm-hmm. And so they go around and they, like, dine together and they see landmarks and stuff during the day, and Anne and Charles are very cordial to each other. And uh, then at night, Marianne comes to Anne's room and they have sex. So Charles, like, 100% knows what's going on here. I don't know. From comments, it seems that it's quite normal for women to just, like, share beds and so forth platonically this time. I... And also, like, um, he kind of says, like, oh, the room's really small and stuffy. Like, do you, like, ladies want to share a room instead? Okay. This sounds like an incredibly awkward holiday. Yes. Yeah. It does. (laughs) I naively, when I started reading the holiday portion, was like, okay, but, like, Seeing as this whole thing is about keeping up public appearances, surely you're not going to have to say, oh, there you go, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the trip goes quite well, Mm. and Marianne is able to go away to Paris with Anne. I just want to point out as well that the, like, figure we're talking about is called Anne, and her girlfriend's called Marianne, and her other girlfriend's called Maria. There are only two names, yeah. (laughs) Her sister, Anne's sister, is called Marion. (laughs) Wait, wait. Does this mean that potentially when she's accidentally swapping around some of the names in her earlier diaries, she is, like, 2% of the time referring to a different human? Look, I'm going to admit that I got, like, a bit into these diaries before I realized that Marion was her sister. Hmm. She's just like, Marianne coming to visit. And I'm like, oh yeah, cool, it's a girlfriend. And then I was like, wait a minute. Hang on a second. Yeah. When they go to Paris, Anne contacts Maria Barlow to tell her that she's back. But she doesn't tell her that Marianne is with her. And Maria's always been jealous of Marianne. And so they go to see her, and Maria is shocked and upset and tells Anne that she really should have told her that that was what was happening. Yeah. I mean, that that's a fair statement. Yeah. should have. Anne continues to visit Maria. When they get to Paris, Marianne is quite... She feels quite secure in Anne's affections, but as the trip goes on, she seems to become a bit uncertain. Anne won't actually recommit to Maria, but she does tell her, like, look, I do still love you. It just It's not working out right now. 
and it's a bit mm. like just leave the woman alone. <laughs> oh. Marianne and Anne, nevertheless, have quite a good time in Paris. They go sightseeing, they eat a lot of good food, Anne exclaims over all of the, like, exciting pastries, which, having been in Paris and having been excited about all of the pastries, I quite liked to read. They're without the threat of Charles hanging over them for a lengthy period of time, for the first time since the marriage began, maybe even? A long time, anyway. And it's just a really peaceful and happy time, and I wish it could stay that way forever that's nice but um after a month or so charles comes over to france and takes marianne back to england maria barlow this whole time has kind of kept up hope that once marianne's gone and in her absence will go back and so once marianne leaves they do start up a, a sexual relationship again Anne still isn't really like happy with maria mm. though and they get together for a while and Anne remains sure that Marianne is her, like, primary partner, who she wants to be with. She's just kind of like, well, I could have no one right now, or I could have Maria. And she hides the renewed relationship between her and Maria from Marianne, which is writing to her. And then eventually Maria and her just break up permanently. Marianne, by this point, has decided to stay with Charles. It means that it'll look better if they do eventually get together, Mm -hmm. and it'll mean that she'll have an extra 500 a year she can bring to their relationship. Anne is speaking to Charles at this time, and he's confided in her about his affairs, and she tells him, never let Marianne know, because then she'll leave you. And it'll make her very unhappy. And he agrees. And it's around this point that the diaries end. Not the diaries, like, overall, but the published diaries. It ends with Marianne sailing off back to England, and then staying behind in France, and hoping that, like, soon we'll meet again, never to be parted. And so the rest is just from um, the, like, epilogue that Helena Whitbread wrote. After, I think it's a few years, she goes back to England um, so she can deal with the estate and because she wants to see Marianne. The thought of seeing Marianne again since their parting has kind of just kept her going. But she's she leads this very glamorous life in Paris. Mm-hmm. I think there's a million other stories there, but they're in parts of the diary that aren't published and we're a lengthy podcast already is this at about the same time that paris gets its reputation as like a sapphic haven i think like quite pre that actually like i think paris for a long time has just been more permissive than Mm. a lot of places but i don't think this is like paris's heyday of being a sapphic haven so when she eventually does return to england she goes to stay with marianne Mm. and she finds that marianne just holds no appeal to her She seems dull and provincial, and she just kind of doesn't know what to do with her. Hmm. So uh, she stays with her for a little while, basically out of obligation, and then she leaves, and she's sort of done with Marianne. So, yeah, they never live together. That's sad. Marianne outlives Anne by quite a while, I think, and possibly also Charles does. She stays with Charles until his death. So Anne goes back to Shibden Hall, and she spends the years from 1828 to 1832 kind of seriously looking for a partner. She's getting on in her life. She wants this to be tucked away. She is specifically as well thinking that she wants someone who can bring money and or social connections to her. This is very important to her. And she starts wooing a local heiress called, I want to guess. Oh, is it Mary? No. Uh, is, is it, it also Anne? It's Anne. <laughs> that's, what, that's around two possible options. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a local heiress called Anne Walker. In 1834, Anne Walker comes and lives at Shipton Hall, and they combine their fortunes, and oh. that's oh. her wife. 
Hooray. Well, she has a wife. That was a happy ending. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's like this whole story about yeah. them, but I don't know what it is. I'm sorry. I was super primed by fiction for everyone to die here. I mean, we've, we've got time. I mean, they're going to die, but I was primed for Anne to just be like, and then she left Marianne, and then she eventually just died alone. Mm. Of a venereal disease. <laughs> Not how she dies. Hooray! Okay. Oh, duel? No. Oh. Anne has misgivings about whether or not they're actually like well-suited to each other. Sorry. Or... Anne Lister? I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Anne Lister, the hero of our story, has misgivings about whether she and Anne Walker... Why did you do this to us, Anne? <laughs> Also, other Anne. <laughs> and Anne's can actually live happily together and whether they're well suited, but nevertheless, they move in together. And they don't have a hugely happy relationship. I think kind of good enough, but this isn't like the perfect partner that Anne Lister's wanted her mm. whole life. Anne is like a very like a very active person she's always got to have like stuff to do she's very energetic Mm -hmm. she wants to travel she wants to constantly be in motion and Anne walker isn't like that at all Mm -hmm. she has a history of what helena whitbread called neurotic illness um Mm -hmm. so she'd spend days just lying on the couch she'd be constantly teary and things they took her to doctors and a doctor immediately just threw them out of his office basically saying if she wasn't rich she wouldn't be sick okay people aren't very sympathetic about this like now writing about it, saying, like, she cultivated it and everything. It seems to me fairly clear-cut, admittedly from having not read the sources, but nevertheless, that Anne Walker just had a mental illness. Yeah, that That's... sounds like depression, maybe. Yeah. I am not qualified. But that's what that sounds like. Yeah, so Anne Walker was mentally ill. And life was difficult for her because she lived in a time where no one understood that or was sympathetic about it at all. Mm-hmm. And like a bunch of the stuff we've talked about with, like, sexual harassment or people's thoughts on lesbians, it's not really changed as much as we'd like. They go on trips together, but Anne Walker's, like, temperament just kind of isn't suited to constantly traveling and being outside a comfort zone. And so Anne Lister isn't left with, like, the companion that she Mm. wants on those trips. They eventually go on a trip that Anne has been wanting to take for a long time to more exotic places as she sees them to russia to turkey mm-hmm. and they leave in 1839 in the middle of 1839 and they travel russia until late 1840 and they reach the foothills of the caucasus mountains and it's here on her wild but delightful wanderings as anne called them that she catches a fever and she dies oh. age 49 oh that's not a lot no. no she lived a life man yeah Anne Walker's left with the task of bringing her body back to Halifax to be buried in the parish churchyard. Um, the journey takes seven months. Wow. Oh, Anne yeah. Walker. Oof. Yeah, that would have been very grueling, Yeah, like logistically and emotionally. Having having your girlfriend Byron in the middle of Russia is not something that you want. We really got to do the Byron episode. <laughs> we'll get there. In her will, Anne Lister leaves her entire estate to Anne Walker for the duration of her life, um, providing that Anne Walker never marries again. And then it reverts to the Lister, like, family line of succession. That is very responsible from a social standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. She has had Marianne left with provisions in her will at various times, but Mm -hmm. ultimately she leaves her with nothing. Oh. Yeah, they're just done by this point. Okay. Mm. Well, I I hope that we get a published... uh... What um, would be third, second volume? 
Yeah, I um I know that uh the historian's working on a biography now, so I think that's taken a backseat. I don't know if she'll return to it. I really always just want like a comprehensive, just like all of it published, but mm. she wrote four million words. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So we can't do that. No. Um Yeah. Well. Yeah. It'd be good to have more. I'm sure that there's a lot that happened with Anne Walker that would be worth mm. worth reading about. It felt weird to kind of have her like what ends up being her main relationship, her final relationship, be mm. covered so briefly, but I definitely assumed when you said this is where this is where the published diaries end that the rest was going to be footpaths and gardening. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the big romance of her life, which I feel like would be good reading. Like I kinda of felt like it felt like not a, a really big emotional deal to Anne, which I mm. doubt is actually true. Mm. It's just because like it's beyond the constraints of the volumes that we have, it's it can't be covered in the depth that's necessary to convey that. So I talked a little bit about how like Anne is so important because she's this example of a text from the point of view of a same-sex attracted woman in her time that's very explicit about her desires and so forth. Um, and she's also very important just in terms of talking about lesbian identity and identity formation. She's quite often called the first modern lesbian, and that's kind of like pop history i feel like a bit like mm. it's a bit simplistic it's a bit sensationalistic but like you can see why that label gets applied to her yes she's going to be like a lot more simple in terms of identity than a lot of the people we have to talk about because the way that she conceptualizes her identity is actually like very familiar to us mm. she describes it as i love and only love the fairer sex and thus beloved by them in turn my heart revolts from any other love than theirs you can't really argue that lesbian isn't an appropriate term there. Mm, Obviously, there's the whole thing about, like, it was a different time, but that's just very familiar. Yes, that seems very clear-cut. And she also says about her sexuality that it's uh, surely natural to me in as much as it wasn't taught, it's not fictitious, but instinctive. And that as well mirrors our current understanding of Mm. sexuality Mm -hmm. as inborn and unchangeable and so forth. Mm. What's also interesting about that is that she lives in this time where there's, like, virtually no material about other queer women available to her and there's this idea in the literature that's dying but like not quick enough that women of Anne's time because there was no like visible model of Mm. queer women never formed strong identities and then they never had sex because there weren't they didn't know how models to base that on there weren't words for it so yeah they didn't know how and so she clearly has this strong identity formed where she understands and has opinions about her own desires, mm. and also where she definitely has sexual relationships with women mm. that gives, like, very obvious lie to that. And Just the the pillar of that argument that people would not find a way to have sex seems to ring false to me. That's, that's maybe our one talent as a species. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's a very common idea that you come across in scholarship about queer history, though. We do see in her diaries, though, a lifelong search for representation essentially for material about queer women her obsession with the ladies of the welsh place she had an obsession with these women because they're some of the only visible other Mm. possible queer women she knows about she spends a lot of time and money hunting down hints of queerness in classical texts we live in a time where it's very easy to Mm. get classical Mm -hmm. texts that finding ones without the queerness edited out, especially then, was Mm. quite difficult for her. At 23, she made a detailed vocab list of all of the sexual terms she'd found in Latin literature. 
That sounds like a good resource to have. Yeah, yeah. that was. I thought that was very cool. She references juvenile satires quite often for having a few mentions of like sexual activity between women. And she also references Sappho to some extent, but Sappho's poetry is largely rewritten as heterosexual mm. in that time. Sappho was a poet on the Isle of Lesbos in the 6th, 7th century BCE. Uh, she wrote about desire for women. I'm doing a thesis on her. I love her. But because she was a woman who wrote about desire for other women, there's been this incredibly lengthy campaign to either just smear her as a person or to downplay her attraction to other women. She does know, I think it's from like an encyclopedia entry that mm -hmm. Sappho writes about loving women. Hmm. But she makes this really interesting distinction between like natural lesbianism as she regards herself being, mm -hmm. where it's just this kind of like inbuilt desire mm -hmm. and like learned or taught lesbianism. And she refers oh. to the latter as sapphic, which oh. is really interesting. And we just don't have the time and I don't have any context. She's, because of her like classical education that she's given herself, is able to pick up allusions to queerness in literature of the day. She mentions Byron a bunch because she's quite fond of him. And that's another place where she can kind of look for representation. She also reads queer undertones into like heterosexual novels of the day, oh. which we've all <laughs> been there. <laughs> and I found that quite enjoyable. And that's the life of Anne Listener. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queer as Fact. My name's Eli. I'm Hamish. I'm Alice. And we are Queer as Fact. Just a reminder that you can find us on Facebook as Queer as Fact, on Tumblr as Queer as Fact, and on Twitter as Queer as Fact. And if you want to contact us, uh, you can also email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. We'll be back on the 15th of May with our next episode. Do you want to tell us what it'll be about, Alice? I'll be talking about Sylvia Drake and Charity Bryant, who are a same-sex couple in early America.